As the ushers are passing the baskets, uh, I wanted to tell you about our series we're in. It's in Acts, and we have really enjoyed what God's doing today. Pastor Matt Dietz is going to continue that message, and before he comes up, he's going to be talking about this video right here. It is the order of this council that you do not speak the name of Jesus or teach in the name of Jesus. Violation of this order will bring punishment upon you, according to the law. For Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Christ hath said that ye are the light of the world. A city which is set on a hill cannot be hid. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. The men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring upon us the blood of this man. We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom he slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses of these things. 
And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to those that obey him. Refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. Be careful, therefore, lest you be found even to fight against God. You were forbidden to preach in the name of the man Jesus, and yet ye have done so. For this violation, you shall be punished to the full extent of God's law. So any questions? Let's go ahead and pray and we'll close out our service. No, it's, uh, I really like opening with videos because it really helps to set the stage and create a mental image of exactly what it is that we're going to be talking about. Almost puts us there in the moment. And as you can see from our passage this moment or this morning, there's this theme that's kind of woven throughout it of failed persecution. How it starts with the apostles being thrown into prison and yet they get released. And they're commanded to go and to not teach and do anything, and yet they still go into the temple courts and preach all the more. In addition to that, we see that they're arrested and they're beaten in order to discourage them, and yet they rejoice in the face of their persecution. In the midst of all this, we also see a very humorous look at the emotions of the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees and the high priest here. First, they're filled with jealousy at the fact that these apostles are becoming more popular than they are. And then they move into this series where they feel baffled when they're not where they last left them in prison. And it escalates and it moves to this feeling of being enraged and being angry when they find out that they're violating the command in which they've given them to not go and preach. And Luke is painting this amazing picture of a very irrational and a very irresponsible and emotional Sanhedrin and their actions, and what they're doing, and how they're failing to do the very thing in which they've been tasked to do, to keep order and peace in the land. And so the Sanhedrin are standing there, and they're looking at this problem, and they start having to think outside the box. They're getting too much popularity. They're gaining too much power. So they ask themselves the question, what is the cost of their silence? What will it take? What is the price it's going to take us to make this whole apostle Christian movement thing go away? Can we bribe them? Can we pay them off? Can we negotiate with them? Can we blackmail them? Can we exile them? Do we have to imprison them? Can we kill them? They start thinking, what's it going to take to make this whole Christian thing go away? 
And that's really the mindset that frames our passage this morning. And I want to break it down into three parts for us. I want us to take a look first at the apostles' arrest, and then at the apostles' questioning, and then end up with the apostles' flogging. So if you join me, we're going to look at Acts chapter 5, starting in verses 17 through 18. And it says this, Then the high priests and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles, and they put them in the public jail. So right off the bat, the very first thing that we notice is it says that the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, they became filled with jealousy. It's not just, oh, they started to have this little feeling. It's not just this little tiny emotion that was rising up in them. It says they were filled. It's overflowing inside of them. They can't contain it anymore. The jealousy was moving so mightily through their body, they couldn't even stop to think or to react. It was an impulse decision in what they decided to do because of how powerful it was. And we know that this comes right on the tail when they hear that crowds of people had started gathering from all of the neighboring cities and towns to come and fill the streets to listen to the apostles' teachings, to lay their mats before the feet of the apostles in the off chance that maybe, just maybe, this power of God could heal them. I mean, why go to a Sadducee? Why go to a Sanhedrin? Why go to the high priest and just be taught the law when I can go and be face to face with an apostle and receive healing in my life? And the Sanhedrin, look at this. The Sanhedrin, the, the Sadducees and the high priest, they stand back and they see this unfolding before their eyes and they become filled with jealousy. Wow, these people are a threat. This whole rebel Christian movement is gaining way too much popularity. This power to do miracles is something extraordinary, and it is a threat to our authority as religious leaders in the land. We have to do something about this. So filled with jealousy, they don't negotiate with them. They don't barter with them. They don't ask them nicely to stop. No, scripture says that they go and have them arrested. Their impulse decision was to have them arrested. And as I read this, it really makes me think of this question does jealousy control our actions? What power do we give to jealousy inside of our lives? Do we allow it to have so much root, so much control that it creates these impulses that are automatic that just cause us to react, that we do things and that we say things that we don't mean and that are outside of our character? Things that we would never naturally do on our own, but it just comes forward because the jealousy is building up and it's burning inside of us. You see, jealousy can start as early as childhood, and it can last a lifetime. It can last a lifetime. We know that it can make inseparable people break apart. It can bring nations to war. It can bring rulers and powerful people to their knees. And when we talk about jealousy, we're talking about this feeling of, of bitterness, of grudging, of resent, of covetousness, of envious towards something. It's that feeling you have when your best friend likes your friends more than you. It's that feeling you get when that person, that rival at work gets the promotion that you know you deserve and they don't. It's that feeling you have when your friends have nicer cars or nicer homes or a better looking family than you and you don't want to admit it. You see, at some point in our lives, every single one of us has felt the sting, has felt the hurt, has felt the betrayal and the devastation that's left behind the wake of jealousy. And in those moments, it overflows in us and it causes us to react on an impulse and to say things and to do things that are totally not in our character. Things that we would never normally do that hurt other people around us. 
because we're not thinking properly. And that's exactly the situation that the Sadducees and the high priests found themselves in. You see, jealousy, there's nobody that's free from it. Even the most honest and upright of people can't escape the power of jealousy. And that's probably what the high priest thought of himself. He thought of himself as a very powerful, as a very honest, as a very upright and noble person without even realizing that the jealousy had crept into his life. But that's often the case, isn't it? That jealousy gets into our lives and it takes root and it starts to grow before we even know that it's there. And then it's too late and we find ourselves just naturally responding and reacting to things without even thinking about it. And it's crazy the power that gives inside of it. The point is this, is that unchecked jealousy, it isn't just a hindrance to our obedience with God, but it also lies behind some of the most wicked injustice that we see in this world. And that's exactly what's happening here in this situation. The Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the high priests, they're looking at the situation unfolding in front of them. And they say, wow, they're getting so popular. They're getting so much fame. We don't want that. We have to be greater than they are. They've done nothing wrong. They haven't broken any laws yet, but this is just wrong. This is a threat to us, so we have to take action. And so with the jealousy that was overflowing inside of them, Scripture says that they went and they didn't barter with them. They didn't negotiate with them. They didn't bribe them. It says they grabbed them and threw them into jail. Threw them into jail. And this isn't just some kind of police jail or some holding cell. Luke is very specific and he says it's the public cell. If you look in the Greek, it's referred to as the common ward. Historically, this is a place that was reserved for thieves, for murderers, for robbers, for thugs, for adulterers. The worst of the worst criminals is they awaited trial for execution. Kind of like our death row, if you would. So their plan in the moment of jealousy was to grab these guys and to throw them into a deep, dark holding cell, never to be seen again. Because that made sense to them in their fit of jealousy and their fit of rage. If we can't be popular, we'll remove the threat to our popularity. We'll remove whatever it is that's prohibiting us from going forward and doing more. But you know what? That's not what God had in store for them. God wanted so much more. Look at this, continuing on in the next couple verses. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. See, the apostles are charged to go back into the temple and do the very same preaching in the very same place that they were arrested just the day before. Most of us would be like, nope, peace out. I'm gone, right? Like I got released from prison. I'm done. I'm not going back there. That's dumb. I'm just going to get arrested again. But the angels commanding them and saying, no, I want you to go back. I want you to go back there and preach and not just speak these contrite formulas or theories or theology of what scripture, but profess all of the good things about your new changed life. To tell the people about what you have experienced, about what the power of God is doing in your life. That's what I want you to teach. You see, God had released them from prison to do something far riskier and far greater than they ever possibly could have imagined. And the crazy thing is, they didn't even delay. Look at this in the next verse. In verse 21, it says, At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. They didn't hesitate. When they got this command, they're like, yeah, you know what? We're going to give it some time. Maybe go to a different temple and preach. No, they left the prison cell, and they went immediately back into the temples and started teaching despite knowing exactly what it was that would happen to them. 
what was truly at stake for them in their lives. And now their actions actually constitute breaking the law. They had been given a direct command by the religious authorities not to teach, not to preach. And here they were back in the temples teaching and preachings. They are lawbreakers. But what they realized was that the command of God was far more important than the command of unjust men. And what it came down to for them is this idea that some form of civil disobedience and protestation is inevitable in a world that is ravaged by social injustice. It's inevitable. And so these guys looking at the face of it, they say, we have a choice to make. We either follow the law of man telling us don't do this thing because there's jealousy at the root of it, or we go and do what God has told us to do. We either react out of fear or we react out of faith. And they went towards faith. They said, you know what? Despite persecution, despite the situation we find ourselves in, we have faith that God will take care of us. If he's going to release us, he has something greater in store for us. We're not going to let the devil win. You know, Edmund Burke once said, the only thing needed for evil to win is for good people to do nothing. And this is exactly what was happening in this passage. The only thing the devil needed to win was for the apostles to run and flee in the face of persecution. But they knew that God had something so much greater, so much more powerful, so much more important in stake for them. So they ran towards the temple at daybreak and started preaching and teaching the word of God. And so in the morning, they were up there, they were teaching again, letting everybody gather once again to them. And the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and the high priests are over here conspiring behind closed doors for this trial to take place and how they were going to remove these apostles permanently. Look at this next part of this verse. It's so crazy because they forgot, they're unaware that they're actually not in prison anymore. Look at this, verse 21 to 26. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and they reported, we found the jail securely locked, the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. And they did not use force because they feared the apostles or that the people would stone them. See, had the religious leaders been a little bit more spiritually mature, they would have been in the temple courts that morning doing their religious rituals. But because they were so focused on the jealousy that existed inside of them, they were burning so passionately on seeking revenge and going after these apostles, they now stood in direct defiance and disobedience to the law of God. Their jealousy had made them completely violate every single thing that they stood for but they didn't care because they were so focused and bent on destroying these apostles. And it takes this nameless someone to come in and say, hey, you guys are so focused on your own desires, your own heart, you haven't even realized that they're not even there anymore. They're now in the temples, they're now teaching, and they're now preaching. And it says that they're at a loss. They're baffled saying, oh my gosh, how did they get out? What is going on? So they send the commanding officer and his guards to go and grab them and bring them back. Because arresting them didn't work the first time. Somehow they got out. So maybe, just maybe, this time some forceful interrogation will be the better tactic. 
Which brings us to the second part of this message, which is the apostles are questioned. And the fact that the apostles are questioned by the high priest just goes to show the effectiveness of their message. See, they had been going around Jerusalem preaching and teaching, and people were gathering from all different places in the world to come and hear them speak. And as they would hear them speak, they were so moved by the message. They were so moved by the power of the Holy Spirit, they couldn't wait to run back home and tell it to their families, to their friends, to their neighbors, to go into the markets, the schools, and their workplaces. Wherever they went, they would tell them about how God had transformed their lives about what God had truly started to do. And the Sanhedrin, they recognize this. And so they bring this against the apostles. Look at this in verses 21 through 26. I'm sorry, in verses 27 through 28. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. You see, the problem for them wasn't the fact that they were teaching this revolutionary message. The problem for them was the fact that they were saying that the Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And this is so ironic because if you remember at the arrest and the trial of Jesus in front of Pilate, Pilate says, I wash my hands of this man's blood. Let his blood be upon you and your descendants. Do you remember how they responded? The high priest and the Sadducees sitting in the crowd right there. They're like, yes, we will gladly take on the blood of this man. Let it be upon us and our descendants. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Once again, jealousy being displayed in their lives. And now the fact that they're standing on the other side of it, realizing that the blood of Jesus is upon them, they're appalled at the consequences and say, how dare you blame us for this man's death? We had nothing to do with this. Once again, standing in disobedience and defilement towards the Lord. So much irony that exists here and they're appalled at consequences. But what Peter does is amazing. Look at how Peter responds to this interrogation. Verses 29 to 32. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And we are witnesses of these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. See, instead of defending themselves, instead of defending their actions in the face of persecution, in the face of potential death, they preached the gospel. In mere 31 words in the Greek, they pronounced this most profound version of the gospel that says, I don't care what you do to me because God is for me, because God is with me. And we are going to obey men rather, or we're going to obey God rather than obey men for whatever it's going to take, whatever that may look like in our lives. See, the point is, is that the gospel message, it begins and it ends with this word obey. It begins and it ends with this word obey. Obedience is the key to the gospel proclamation. And we've seen this theme all throughout the book of Acts so far. We saw it in the disobedience of Ananias and Sapphira and withholding their offering from God. We've seen it in the disobedience of the high priest and the religious leaders and how they're dealing with the apostles in this situation. 
And now here the apostles stand in contrast to all the disobedience being the only obedient people recognizing that if God is for them, nothing can be against them. That they choose to follow God over anything else. That there was a boldness that existed in them. I don't care what you do to me. I'm going to proclaim the name of God. And where did this boldness come from? Well, we saw at the very beginning of the book of Acts, it came from the Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit will empower you to go and to preach and to proclaim his name in all of the lands. That's really what it was about. And they, apostles, they took this seriously. There was nothing else they wanted to do in their lives than to live, to truly live for Christ, no matter what the cost was. What about us? What does that look like in our lives? Do we allow jealousy to control our actions, to make us push away from this, to not go into obedience with God because we're so focused in other areas of our lives? Or are we truly willing to step up and do whatever it takes as the Lord is calling us to? Because that's what they did. In the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the high priests, they see this and they say, oh man, this is getting out of hand. We arrested them, but somehow they got out. We've now forcefully interrogated them and we've tried to get them to crack, but instead of that, they're just making a fool of us. And they're throwing this gospel message back at us. You know what? We need to escalate it. Once again, their jealousy is now boiling into rage. They say, we need to have a permanent solution, a permanent fix to all of this. You know what we're going to do? We're going to beat them. Actually, you know what? We want to kill them. Blood is now boiling inside of them and they have this thirst for blood. We want them removed. We want them dead. And that moves us into our third part of our message where the apostles are flogged. Look at this, in verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and they wanted to put them to death. They wanted the apostles to be removed permanently. Their jealousy had gotten so unchecked, so out of hand that they are tasting blood in their mouth that they want them gone. No matter what it takes, they're willing to do. And it's the same jealousy, it's the same rage, it's the same emotion that also put Jesus upon the cross. If you remember in the book of John, he records that Jesus said, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. And all throughout church history, we have seen some of the most wicked persecution come at the hands of injustice that stems from the root of jealousy. And that's exactly what we see happening in this story. They are so jealous, they want blood. They want them removed, not even thinking about what they stand for or who they represent. In the middle of all this, there's one man who stands up and kind of comes to the defense in a very unique way. Look at this. Gamaliel calms the Sanhedrin by calling to them. Verse 34 to 39. He says, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting 
against God. See, Gamaliel was a Pharisee. He was a minority in the council. He wasn't some big shot. He wasn't a very well-to-do kind of guy, but he was favored amongst the people. And the high priests and the Sadducees, they, they recognize this. And so they walk up to him and say, hey, you know, what should we do? We know that you represent the people. How will the people respond if we kill these guys? And Gamaliel, he says, you know what? These guys are just like every other revolutionary that we've seen. They rise up, they come to power, they get a following, but eventually they just disappear. And then another one rises up, it comes to power, it's turbulent for a little bit of time, and then they disappear. So just let them go. It's going to fade out. These guys are nothing. He considers them no more than revolutionaries. But he ends with something so profound. He says, if by chance, maybe, just maybe, if these guys are actually from God, then there's nothing that we can do to stop them. There's no plan. There's no action. There's nothing that we can take to thwart them because we're not fighting against them. We're fighting against God. And after some persuasion, he convinces them to let them go. But the Sanhedrin, once again, are filled with jealousy. And they're enraged. And they say, we can't just let them go. That's not right. We have to send a message, a very strong message, not just to their apostles, not just to their followers, but to anybody who believes in this whole movement that's going on right now. We can't just let them go. So let's command them, do not teach in the name of the Lord again. In addition to that, we're going to beat you. We're going to beat you so severely that you would be afraid to open your mouth and speak again. Which leads us to our third and our final part of this message, which is the apostles are flogged. Look at this, verse 33. When they heard this, or his speech persuaded them, then he called the apostles in, had them flogged, and then ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they beat them severely in addition to giving them command, once again, do not teach in the name of the Lord. Whatever you do, it is forbidden to do this. And we see that the apostles, well, they don't take lightly to that, and they keep going and they keep preaching. And the next couple chapters, spoiler alert, they're going to result to execution and the stoning of Stephen because of how far unchecked their jealousy had become. So time after time after time again, we see persecution coming towards them. But despite the persecution, the church continues to grow. This movement continues to get stronger and stronger. No matter what the cost was, these early apostles, they could not be bought. They could not be bribed. They could not be silenced. They could not be persuaded. Nothing could come against them because for them to live was Christ and to die was gain. They could think of nothing better to do than to preach God no matter where they went, whatever it may cost them. They were willing to be obedient to Jesus because they knew obedience to him was far greater than anything that they could suffer in the hands of this world. What about us? Do we have that same kind of boldness? Do we have that same kind of passion that when we leave this place, we are so moved by the power of the Spirit that nothing can get in our way? Knowing that the Holy Spirit is there with us and it's going to help us spread this Christian movement, it's going to help build this church like wildfire? Or do we get bought off in silence? Do we let fear and doubt and worry and jealousy control us? to where we just leave this place and don't think anything else of it. How much would it take to silence you? What would it take to buy you off or have you already been bought off and not willing to truly do what Christ has called us to do? Are you willing to suffer in the name of Jesus Christ? 
Are you willing to forego social advancements and job security for the sake of God? What will it take? What does it cost? What does that look like? These men were ready to give it all. They were ready to do whatever it would take. And we see all throughout history stories of people, of Christians, of missionaries who are face-to-face with persecution, face-to-face with torment, face-to-face with death and all of these things, and yet they still find joy just like these apostles did. So you've been watching the news. We just read a story about a man named John Allen Chow who uh, was just killed off the, the coast of India for trying to spread the message. If you guys haven't heard the story, he was in a kayak and he went to the island to try to preach to this group of people on the island. And once he got there, they started throwing spears at him. So he got back in and he rowed to his boat. And as he was sitting there, he wrote and he journaled and he says, you know what? I feel that God is calling me here that if I don't go, who else will? So he gets back in the kayak and he goes back and it cost him his life for trying to spread the word of God. You know, Tertullian once said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more that we grow. The seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. See, the fact is there will always be persecution. There will always be hatred towards the purposes of God. There will always be, it's inevitable, but it's usually in the midst of this persecution that we see some of the greatest strengths of the church start to unfold and start to become unveiled. These apostles, man, they were zealous for God. They were so passionate. They were so moved that they did not have fear. They had a boldness of the Holy Spirit that allowed them to go because they remembered what Gamaliel said, that if they are for Christ, which they were, nothing could be against them. No hurt, no pain, no injustice, nothing could come up against them. And so they took that mentality and they went back completely defying their commands and continued to preach. Look at how this verse continues. It says this, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day, in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is Christianity. This is Christ. This is what it's all about. But the sad reality is I think that this is hard to find. That we've lost sight of all of this. That we're okay with just coming to church and listening to a short 20, 25 minute message, singing some songs, then leaving these doors completely unmoved, unchanged, completely ungrateful for the things that God has done for us. And we go out and we just continue to live our lives like none of this means anything, that we can just check our Christian box when we come to church. And maybe that's the fault of the pastors. Maybe that's the fault of the church. But the question is, are you being so motivated? Are you being so moved by the power of God moving and living and breathing inside of you that you can't help but go and shout the top of your lungs that Jesus is alive? that Jesus is here because that is what he's calling us to. He wants us to go from this place without fear, without doubt, without hesitation, without worry, because he is for us and nothing can be against us. And that's what he's calling us to. That's what he is leading us to. We don't have to be held captive by this. You see, Satan holds us in doubt. Satan holds us in fear. Satan holds us in this place of complacency because when we're comfortable, we don't want to change and we don't want to change. We don't seek to be better. We don't make the world around us better. God says, I want you to be better. I've given you everything it takes to be better. What is the price of your silence? What would it take to make you be quiet and not preach this message? Have you already been bought off? Have you already been living in doubt, in fear, 
and worry? What scars, what persecution, what torment, what hatred, what injustice are you willing to face in the name of the Lord? I know it's difficult. I know that it's hard to think about this. It's not something that comes naturally to us, but we need to stop living these mediocre, complacent Christian lives and truly start living lives as Christ has called us to to truly start living lives of purpose, lives that desire change, lives that allow us to go out and tell the world the good news of Jesus Christ, that we would just stop sitting and waiting for the world to change around us and actually be that catalyst and start to make that change, to do what it takes to not be bought off, to not be persuaded, to not be bribed or blackmailed or held in fear, but to be released from silence, to boldly proclaim in the name of the Spirit, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, that Jesus is real and that Jesus has a power for you and that Jesus has a power for me. And that's what he wants for us. Who is it that maybe you need to go and preach the word of God to, to share the word of God that may be uncomfortable or inconvenient for you this week? What is it that you're holding on to so tightly in your life that you need to give up in order to truly be all in for Jesus Christ? What punishment, what hatred, what injustice do you need to come to terms with in order to be all in for Jesus? Because, man, these apostles, they were all in. They were all in, no matter the cost. So with open, exposed wounds in their back, with blood-drenched clothing, with blood drops dripping as they walked from the beating and the flogging and the persecution, they moved back into the temples, a bloody, broken mess, and are empowered by the Holy Spirit. What are we willing to do? What's the price of our silence? Would you pray with me? Father, God, this is a tough message. God, it's not easy to for us to naturally be this bold. Father, I know there may be a lot of us, even me, Father, who sometimes we're held captive by hesitation, by fear, by doubt, by worry, by feelings of insignificance, of lack of self-worth, Father, lack of purpose. Father, I'd help. I pray that you would just help us to realize, God, that you've empowered us. God, that you have filled us with your Holy Spirit. God, that you have called us to something so far greater than the melancholy of this life. God, that you have called us to go and to boldly proclaim your name. Father, to profess that you are risen, Father, that you are alive, Father, and that there is nothing on this world that can come against us that you can't just squash like a little bug. Father, I pray that maybe some of us are sitting here and we've been desiring this kind of boldness. Father, maybe to take that next step, Father, I pray that you just give us that passion. Father, that you just fill us up. Father, that you just ignite our lives, that we would go from this place just so on fire from you that we just can't shut up about you. God, that we would just preach you to the ends of the world as you have called us to, Father. Father, I pray that you give us a boldness. Father, I pray that you just give us a passion. Father, I pray that you just reignite us today to boldly go forward looking at persecution in the face, Father, and saying, you've got nothing on me. Father, for if we are for you, nothing can be against us. We love you, Father. In your name.